Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 24th, 2023. New week, old subject. We've talked a lot about the environment over the weeks and months and years on this show. Many different thinkers, writers, uh, activists of one kind. George Monbiat, one of the world's leading environmental journalists, was on talking about the food crisis and what we need to eat and stop eating to fix uh, our destruction of the environment. Uh, For many, it's apocalyptic. We're on the verge of a catastrophe. People like Eugene Linden believe that Our path to a livable future is becoming narrower and narrower. It affects everything. Uh, We did a show with a young woman, Debbie Lockwood, who rode a bicycle around the world, um, writing and observing the personal impact of climate change around the world. What can we learn about the past when it comes to the environment? One Harvard professor, Martin Puchner, professor of comparative literature, believed that we need to read the classics in order to fix our environmental crisis. Others believe that we need to study history itself, geological history. Uh, Bathsheba DeMuth, very uh, brilliant young historian, was on the show uh, last year talking about her new book, Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait. My guest today, though, has gone one or two steps beyond um, uh, Bathsheba DeMuth. Uh, many of you will be familiar with Peter Frankopan. He's one of the world's leading, most distinguished, best-known historians, of course, best known for uh, the Silk Roads. And he has a new book out, if anything, more ambitious than the Silk Roads, The Earth Transformed and Untold History, which in many ways is a meta-history of our relations with the environment. And he's joining us today from the United Kingdom, Peter have I been fair? Is this a meta history? Is this an insanely ambitious project that you have actually uh, accomplished? Uh, well, great to be here. Thank you very much. And such distinguished company, too, of uh, the other wonderful sp- thinkers you've spoken to. Um, I don't know. Sort of pigeonholes. Are sort of, I understand why people want labels. I mean, I think that I guess I've tried to do three things. I've tried to, first of all, I'm a global historian. So thinking about big global themes is kind of important. So thinking about what does climate change in the past mean for different parts of the world, I think that's one thing. Second, it's to try to insert humanity back into the natural world. I mean, humans are very, very new in terms of our appearance on Earth. Uh, the Earth was formed about four and a half billion years ago. And, you know, if we think about human history starting with the beginning of writing systems and scripts, like Martin Puckner was talking about, sort of about four or 5,000 years ago, you know, that really is a blink of an eye. But the third thing that I think is is ambitious and interesting is that most historians uh, study texts or they look at the natural environment if they can, or they look at archaeological remains. But today, the thing that's moving by far the fastest across all areas and periods of history are, um, are the sciences. You know, we have this strange way of doing things. We don't do quite the same way in the US as we do here in the UK, but we have sort of humanities all, all STEM subjects. And in fact, the amount of materials that are being generated by advances into genomics, into migration patterns, into haplotypes, into looking at what we can learn from climate data that is not just plentiful, but extremely accurate, 
completely revolutionizes how we can think about the past. So, yeah, I guess it's ambitious in trying to think about joining up all of these themes together. But on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm a professor at one of the world's greatest universities. In fact, quite often it's ranked number one. So I, I guess someone like me should be trying to think about big, tricky topics and try and learn, try, try to think about what kind of th questions we can should be asking, what we, we might be able to learn from the past. Yeah, you are, as you said, a, a professor of global history at Oxford University. I'm sure that annoys some of your colleagues. Um, Which bit? The global bit or the Oxford bit? Probably both. Uh, well, your Oxford, I mean, your Oxford colleagues probably not ir irritated by the Oxford bit, although they all want to be the professor. But um, rather the idea of being a, a historian, um, a, a professor of global history. Some historians are very territorial, very narrow. Mm -hmm. Did you choose that title? Is it, in a sense, a, a, a polemical response to the specialization that many historians imprison themselves in? I don't think so. I mean, if we were sitting in the pub and, and we really opened up after sort of second or third drink, you know, I, I might be a little bit less guarded. But, you know, I think most colleagues of mine are extremely supportive. Most, you know, most of us who work as academics try to support each other's work. We're, we're terrible often when it comes to reviewing because people do get territorial and try and think this is how I'd have written a book if it had been up to me. But um, you know, global is important. I mean, global as a label in some ways doesn't necessarily mean anything. And it does, it's, the global history label does antagonize sometimes because, you know, does global mean absolutely everyone? Does it mean connecting everything? Um, and also, you know, it is exactly right that to, 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 to rise up the academic ladder, you need to pick up specialisms. You need to learn about uh, periods and topics in great detail, often including different languages and methodologies. But, you know, you, you can keep on growing. Again, it's, it's something which we do with education. We sort of think that you're finished when you finish high school, you finish college or you finish your PhD. You're kind of you're baked into whatever subject you do. But global does allow you to, to roam around and to keep on mm. adding to your skill sets. And I don't think there's any any downside in all of that. But, you know, no, I agree. I mean, uh, I'm thrilled that we got guys like you. I, I don't want I mean, specialists got, on listen, there, there are lots There are lots of arguments and debates around you know, what, what does global mean? And, and that quickly deteriorates into kind of, well, there's no such thing as Asia, which is obviously correct, but also there's no such thing as Europe. The United States is a slightly different thing when you're talking about a political territory. But, you know, there are all the differences and similarities are all as much as you want them to be. And, you know, I think my job is to try to provide nuance and not to be too dogmatic about it, but to try to navigate through some of those problems. Peter, as I said, you're best known for your Silk Roads, uh, um, which is is a very concrete history or a history of a very concrete route between Asia and Europe. Um, you've also got the new Silk Roads uh, and you wrote a book for children about it. This book is not only more ambitious, but it's more amorphous. How did you choose what to write about and what not to write about? I mean, you could have written about anything, I guess. What you mean as in climate or once I started to write about the natural Well, my environment? point about the Silk Roads is you're limited by, it's a history of the Silk Road, so you're not going to stray off the Silk Roads mostly. But um, The Earth Transformed is, is a book about everything and everyone in a sense, theoretically, it can't cover everything. How did you decide what to include in the book and what to leave out? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I loved, you know, it left to my own devices, you know, like most authors, it would be three times the length. But, um, you know, that's apparently... it's long enough already. I mean, you've got it, it's so well researched. It's so richly researched that the the footnotes don't exist in the physical text. They exist online. Well, they'd, they'd be 230 extra pages, which is quite a lot to carry around. There's a little bit of 
climate you know i said that to my publishers and they said well maybe you shouldn't have written 700 pages in the first place if you were that worried about it which is fair enough but it's also that as an academic uh, being able to um search notes and to cut and paste references saves a huge amount of time rather than having to write them all out by hand so uh, you know and, and putting them online means that the book is going to be ten dollars or so cheaper than it might otherwise have been so it's a little bit of a uh, of an effort i mean some some academics are definitely edgy about the fact that they can't access the notes there and then and don't like having to pick it up on their laptop but not everybody likes to read that way and worries about the notes but you know your question about what what gets included and what doesn't you know i think it's there's a rhythm in in trying to understand how people want to read books so with the silk roads too i mean it felt like each both books is about 25 24 25 chapters each one of them i guess feels like a a book in itself or a kind of episode in itself and you need to you know they're, they're quite dense these books you know learning about the mongols in the 13th century where people's normally most people don't have a huge knowledge about that you need to let people come up for air from time to time so trying to write sort of eight or ten thousand word chapters you know 20 30 well 30 page section so people can then put it down make a cup of coffee and leave it till tomorrow so some of it is about pacing it and also you know the, the trick with a really good history book is to either tell people stuff they've never heard of or or maybe even and for them to keep turning the page going how come i don't know this stuff and and that that requires uh, you know a, 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 so some writing skill and so you've got to have a kind of rhythm i think to how far people what people can digest and what they want to digest and you've got to keep the sort of story moving but right. so how, how would you it, describe the book what is it about i think it's about the natural world I think it's about how the natural world uh, is has constantly been changing since the beginning of time. Uh, it's a it's about how those natural that natural world around us has, has shaped the history of our species, but also how we have reshaped and remodeled the, the world around us, going back right to the beginning of of time. Um, you know, and I think it's quite interesting that most belief systems have as their origin story something to do, something quite similar. Whether you're Abrahamic faiths, so Christ, Judaism, Christianity or Islam, or faiths in India, or the Mesoamerican world, all have quite sort of similar ideas around the creation of the earth to be a sort of perfect environmental envelope. And if you get things wrong, there's ecological punishments that come towards you. So I think that, that, that as far as we go back to written histories, people's concerns about sustainability, around changes to things that were predictable, you know, too much rain and enormous floods, or not enough rain, and what that does to soils and to the ground, it's something that goes back really a very, very long way. And so people like Hammurabi, who he's not the per first person to issue legal codes, but, you know, he's, he's quite early on in the process. The hierarchy, or if that's the right word. Mesopotamian, yeah. Babylonian. And so he, he's busy saying, you know, these kinds of events where you chop down your neighbor's orchard as an act of harm is what, what today we might call ecological an ecological crime. And so, so I think the concerns around the past of thinking about how did you use the natural world to your advantage and i suppose if you think about it like that things like we have lots of discussions here in the uk at the moment as, as you know around empire and british imperial pasts and you know i guess one thing is that if you think about the natural world in the first instance probably you, you arrive at a slightly different idea about empire that all empires are doing is trying to gain they're all ecologically driven the role of an empire is to get more more natural resources under your control than you had before and to expand into regions that offer ecological bonanzas and that could be cotton and sugar and then then the question is how do you grow that and what's the cheapest way to do it how do you dehumanize how do you enslave people to force them to work for you for free how do you create racial stereotypes and so on but even even the roman empire 
and the Mongols. It's it's all about resource acquisition, often within environmental and natural envelopes. And I think we just sometimes forget about that. We sort of think that empires are driven by leaders who just want more land because they look more powerful, rather than being quite selective about what they want and what their ecological mission is. I mean, in the book, I write even about the Second World War, that it wasn't just racial purity that obsessed Hitler and the Germans in the, 20, in the 1930s. It was also about ecological purity, the idea that the German garden, the German environment was better, and that the colonization and extraction of resources from places like Poland and then into Russia was that the Germans would, would manage these lands better because the Germans managed their lands in a way that the Slavs couldn't. So I think there are lots of ways in which these big ideas around empire, conquest, legal systems, uh, sustainability all fold into quite, quite, quite interesting ways of trying to look at familiar topics. Uh, Peter, you're obviously an, an enormously erudite man. You read a, a great deal. You, I assume you began this project as, quote unquote, an environmentalist. It goes without saying we all are. What did you learn from the project that surprised you? What didn't you expect? What, 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 what did all this research, this enormous amount of work, reading, research, uh, and also technological research you talked about earlier, what did that reveal that surprised you that, uh, that might surprise our audience too? Well, God, I mean, it's, it's such a joy having a job like mine where you know my, my job is every day to wake up, read stuff, think about it, and then work out what's interesting and what's important. And there's no corner of the world that I, I know properly backwards you know I'm constantly learning and so the depth of that kind of investigation it's a kind of it's like being let loose in the candy shop so I mean everything has surprised me so for example the colonization of Polynesia by single hull boats it turns out if you look at computer modeling none of this was done by chance it was all done deliberately in a in, a, in about around about 1200 years ago in response to changing patterns and the wind speeds that made sailing in one direction more favorable than, than, than they had been before. So things like that have been incredible. Thinking around how we've treated nature and exploited it and what those what the sort of trick points have been when things go wrong. I suppose that then you step back and go, I so I understand why some of these cities like Uruk or Babylon or Nineveh um, aren't aren't there anymore? I mean, in some cases, they're, they're not. You know, you can't, they're, they're no remains at all, and yet they were once the most important cities on earth. So I guess it sort of sets up the questions around, you know, how often has it gone wrong in the past? The thing I guess I was surprised I hadn't really thought about was when you have states that fail. That's obviously bad if you're very wealthy, but it's a sort of toss up if you are coerced labour or if you're working, you know, in the agro in, in the fields to grow crops for some priests or for rulers who take take it off you it's not completely clear that the fact that there are no more temples or things fall down that that's not necessarily a worse life for you so i think thinking around those kinds of things has been interesting i mean there are a couple of good trip points in my history one is one is with the arrival of the, the rise of islam and um in the 630s uh the arabs of the follower muhammad and his followers build an empire over the course of about four or five decades that eventually reaches from spain the whole way across North Africa, right the way up to the Himalayas, one of the greatest land empires in human history. And were it not for perhaps for a, a, a set of volcanic eruptions about three or four years before that big explosion, it could have been that the force that would have taken over all those territories would have been the Buddhist Central Asian nomads, the Turk Empire at the time, who were by far the most powerful source on earth, a force on earth at that time. 
But what happened with these volcanic eruptions, and if you remember your photosynthesis lessons from, from school, or if you're a biologist, forgive me for reminding the lay reader about the lay listener, but when, when you inject lots of aerosol, when lots of aerosols are injected into the atmosphere by volcanoes, or could be one day from nuclear weapons, um, you, you reduce the strength of the sun's rays, you, you have all sorts of other impl- Im- impacts on crop production and also on heat. And in the case of, the, of, the case of this nomad empire, deaths of, of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of livestock that suddenly weakened this tribal confederation and it collapsed and into that vacuum filled the followers of Muhammad. And that spread not just Islam as a faith, but it spread Arabic customs, cultures, music, uh, games, fashions that united the world uh, across thousands of kilometers. And those kind of turning points, I think, are quite important because uh, it reminds us about single vulnerabilities. And here we are talking a couple of years after a global pandemic that was started, however it happened, by a single bat and a crossover event. And those crossover events happen quite often with disease, but those single points of fracture happen quite often with globalized trading systems too. This is, of course, an enormously polemical subject. It's not possible to write a history of the environment without some some discussion of what we should do. We've had many shows, one with Lucas Chopper, used to be the chief environmental officer at Microsoft on what the role of government and private corporations should be in terms of addressing climate change. Your book has elicited an interesting debate, formally or otherwise. The Wall Street Journal, the reviewer, who's quite conservative, seems to have embraced it in the sense, and and maybe I'm being unfair, that you're not quite as doomish as as some of the other people uh, on the left, and that uh, the the headline of the review was uh, doom may be delayed, whereas the new statesman on the left um, suggests that you're not quite as outraged or perhaps uh, your your agenda is is a, a little more restrained than they would like. I think the new the new uh, scientist would agree with the new statesman. Where, what do you think? You know, you know what reviewers are. You're in the reviewing business too. They, they're generally they will have their own agendas. Is there, um, is there a, a a a practical next chapter, Peter, to this book, The Earth Transformed? If if Joe Biden or Bill Gates um, or Xi Jinping read the book. What would you like them to do when it comes to the environment in terms of what you've argued in this book? Uh, look, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a simple educator, Andrew. You know, my job is to explain how we've got to where we are rather than to gamble and predict what the future might bring. And those clever reviewers who think they can see the future, I mean, may, may well be that they're right, but I don't have their skill sets. And I suspect if I did, I probably wouldn't be reviewing books. I'd be, I'd be, but I'd be making other kinds of decisions about my life. So, you know, I think that um, the the challenge now is to work out how deep these roots come in terms of sustainability. And, you know, for example, things like sea levels started to rise in 1863. You know, we can measure that now very accurately. And I think so. So with my would you respect my my aim, I think, in this book is to explain where where we are now in 2023 and where we've got to as a historian. And I suspect that's why the Wall Street Journal review took the view that they did. It's also at the end of my book, I say, you know, not, nothing happens in a linear process. Nothing, nothing works in quite the way we're expecting it to go. And, you know, projections about demographics by 2100, projections about temperature rises, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to get these things right. But my guess would be the things we should be worrying about, like nuclear escalation, not just in Russia and Ukraine, 
China and Taiwan, but also with uh, presumably new nuclear capabilities in states like Saudi Arabia and Iran, massive redistribution of global wealth as a result, partly of the war in Ukraine, but not only new technologies, uh, you know, impactors from outer space, big volcanic eruptions of which we, we, you know, we haven't had a really important one since about 1815. There are all sorts of variables that can uh, upset the apple cart and, and some might aggravate warming patterns, some might, might reverse them. So single nuclear contacts could have some dramatic effects on how of the world around us, including climatologically. So I think it's very hard to work out what you think is going to happen next. And you could put within quite a range of, of, of variations what the future might might bring. But I think that, that that's for people who have um, enhanced capabilities. My job, I think, is to talk about how this has happened. <laughs> what, is an, what is an enhanced capability, Peter? Well, I think a, a greater confidence in their own forecasting. You're speaking euphemistically. You talked about new technologies. Um, you, uh, you mentioned that you use new technologies in terms of the research, which give, makes the book yeah. even richer. We've had a number of shows about, and there's a, another interesting debate raging, especially on the West Coast amongst technologists in the United States, about whether or not we have the technologies to confront today's crisis. Now, I'm not going to repeat the same question I asked before because you'll duck that one. But what, what does studying history teach us about a faith in new technologies? Have there been similar chapters where previous civilizations have believed that they have the technologies to fix whatever environmental crisis they're faced? And have they won or lost when it comes to these technologies generally? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to duck your question. It's just that I, I'm not the right person to ask. Ask a story about the past rather than about the future. So I, I'm, that, that's why I'm being non-committal about that. I mean, I think in terms of uh, where things have gone wrong in the past, yeah, there have been plenty of examples where people thought technological answers would would develop. I mean, the, the difference of today's world is that we can innovate and distribute so much more quickly, and of course, that's part of the problem around degradation environmental environmentally, not not just in terms of global warming patterns. It's that isn't that there are lots more of us, it's that we can interact so much more more quickly and that we can consume faster too. So th there, there's the pressure. So in, in the past, there have been new technologies that have always come online that have changed dramatically the ways which we could exploit the world. So in, in the Middle Ages, for example, the use of a heavy plow reduced very dramatically the amount of a manpower, human power, labor, labor force that was required to plant crops. And that, that then has a cascading set of different circumstances, which is if you don't need that many people to be plowing the fields, what else can they be usefully doing? Likewise, in the Industrial Revolution, the sort of shift towards what becomes fossil fuel energy sources changes dramatically the relationship between the town and the countryside, because the more engines you can have in cities, the more people you're required to work in there, the more customers, the more mouths you can feed, and the more, the more goods you can be producing. And then that comes at an environmental cost. So the relationship between technological advancement and the social, economic, political, and gender histories, you know, that's a very important part of this too. Uh, there's, there's always a direct and a strong correlation between them. But quite often, of course, technologies are used nefariously. So, I mean, of course, in the 20th century, the ability of our species to kill each other on a far greater and faster scale than anybody's ever done in the past, you know, is underpins the Holocaust, underpins the development of nuclear nuclear weapons, underpins the space program, underpins ICBMs, underpins what, what we've seen in, in Ukraine. So new technologies, we tend to evangelize and think about the upsides and the good sides that they can bring. But that's not necessarily always the case. And so, in fact, even in these last 30 years, 
since the end of the Cold War. You know, some of the discussions that we're having, I'm sure you have on your podcast too, are, are did the Cold War even end, you know, in 1989 now? Yeah, you know, or did we, the world, did we, we had a... One of your British distinguished historian on World War II, who asked the question, has World War II ended? Has anything right. ended? I mean, his, for historians, Peter, nothing ever ends, does it, really? <laughs> well, you know, let's, let's hope that keeps going for a, for a, for a little bit. But it's good. Day. That's why we need wise, wise men like <laughs> you. Your Silk Road, you, you brought out an edition for kids. We did a show uh, last month with Brian Selznick, very distinguished Hollywood uh, animator. He's just written a book about the environment for kids. Would you like to see uh, uh, an Earth transformed for for kids? Uh, I mean, this is a dense book. It might get taught for A-level history and certainly at the university level. But do you think that kids should be learning this stuff, maybe through writers like yourself or other writers? Well, so I didn't call the uh, illustrated version of Silk Road, so Silk Road's for Kids. Because you know there are plenty, plenty of, of grown-ups who don't want to read a six hundred page book and beautifully illustrated work. Yeah, when it was published by Bloomsbury Children, maybe that I, I take your point. Yeah. yeah, but you know, I think I think we sort of over fetishize the the idea of this is what this is what you know d dense thick books are what clever people read and actually you know if you look at things with pictures that somehow that is 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 beneath you. So I, I think that it's up to teachers to work out what they think their their young people should teach. And I, I never met a single teacher certainly in the UK or Europe who isn't completely galvanized about, about, about needing resources to teach whichever topics they like. I mean, I suppose when it comes to the environment, it would seem logical to me that uh, whatever one's political persuasion, however much precisely one wants to attribute the role of, of environmental change to humans or to natural forces, particularly with, with warming, it would seem reasonable that young people should probably have a better idea about that kind of thing than how many wives Henry VIII had. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to colonize space off other of, of, of other areas and other areas of, of history of history but like i said the way in which we we're studying history is completely changing so I, i'm the last generation where you'll be able to do a phd without understanding genomics or without understanding how one can use this to, to for example the phylogenetic tree of the plague bacterium we can now establish that there was a big bang event about 30 years before the black death swept across europe we don't quite know why that happened but the black the 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 bacterium behind plague, the Yersinia pestis, split into four branches uh, 30 years or so before the Black Death spread, and they weren't equally virulent. So those kinds of abilities means that young people need the, the insights to work out that you, you need to think about biology, chemistry, not just in the laboratory, but, but about how you integrate, how you understand the real world around us, because most of us don't put barriers up between literature and art and music. They're just part of culture, generally. They're part of the rich tapestry of life. So I think it would depend on what it is that, that teachers want. But I mean, as it happens, you know, people who got PhDs in from Oxford or do study astrophysics are thought of typically as being clever. Whereas, you know, you, the person who grows your plants and grows your crops and is a farmer, you know, that's not typically a high, highly paid or highly valued job in society, even though it's, it underpins absolutely everything. So it would seem, I thought, reasonable that young people should have a good idea about supply chains, around how things are grown, about where they come from, that you know, a single pair of jeans requires seven and a half thousand liters of water, you know, and that doesn't need to be done in a way that's aggressive or hectoring or telling them never to buy a pair of trousers, but just to understand how things work, and that's what education should be: how things work, from political systems through to supply chains, through to how you grow carrots. And I think education's moved a long way from that because we want measurable things that could be measured by the priesthood, that that 
wants mm. to try to make the world the same as it was 50 or 100 years ago. And, you know, we should probably be modernizing some of that. We certainly should. You spoke about Henry VIII. I'm sure there's some PhD candidate somewhere writing a, their thesis on um, the environmental reasons for Henry VIII's six wives of one kind or another. Another very distinguished global historian is Walter Scheidel. Uh, he teaches at Stanford, uh, one of your meta colleagues. Um, he, he reviewed uh, your book for the Financial Times. He wrote something that I'm sure you've pinned on your wall. He, he wrote, humanity has transformed the earth. Frankopan transforms our understanding of history. It was a very nice thing to say. Love the book. Um, and he summarized, he said, uh, it, when it comes to addressing the climate crisis, uh, he said, our, judging from our past performance, uh, Scheidel writes, our future is a toss-up. Now, I know, um, I know, Peter, you're a keen cricketer. Is that true? Is, is this environmental crisis like a cricket game? Will it depend on who wins the toss? Uh, well, look, I'm very great. I've never met Walter Scheidel, but so I'm. Oh, yeah, I'm well, that was. Grateful. I hope you pin that. Did you pin that on your wall? Humanity has transformed the earth. Frankopan transforms our understanding of history. I wish someone would write something about that for me. About me. Yeah, no, well, I, I probably need to up, update my website. As though the, the, with the veil of tears, I've got enough to be doing already. But yeah, um, but um, is it like a cricket match? Uh, look, I think that we we there are in terms of, of the toss, Peter. Maybe not in terms of the game. But is it a game? Is it depends on who wins the toss? No, I, no, I don't think it is. I think you know nature solves problems without humans interfering with all this stuff. I think I think sustain that there's a finite amount of resources, and they they need to be priced correctly, spent correctly, and and understood what the consequences are. It's a bit like taking a mortgage; you've got to be able to pay back your 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 debt at a certain point. And um, you know, I think we're not wanting to catastrophize. Doesn't I mean is is part of the story of trying to say that there are there are a set of thorny problems that we have and it's not just about the environment it's around china for example and taiwan it's around russia it's around iran and theocracies it's around autocratic states it's around divisions in our own countries i think there's no no end of potential worry points to be thinking about but actually we keep plodding on and you know the world is still turning just about and and it should carry on to do so whether we we're here to see it or not but most of us i think would would consider that we, we probably need to have some better form of global governance that allows these big existential challenges to be solved better and faster than they're currently being. But, you know, uh, Shadell's review probably chimes in roughly what I'd say is that I reckon there's a lot more that could be done that isn't being done at the moment. Well, finally, Peter, um, we had another global historian, Michael Bess, on the show writing about catastrophes in the 21st century. He talks about four climate pandemic, AI and nuclear war. You've mentioned some of those. It is really... The central message in your book is that we, we shouldn't siloize, if there's such a word, those crises, that they're all interrelated and that we, we face one big existential crisis as a species and we have to address it perhaps through the environment, but it touches on many other things too. It's a, such a good question. I, I'm sort of slightly, slightly stumped by what a, what a good answer would be. But I mean, I, I guess... What I'd say is, you know, looking at history in the big in, in the round, pro probably it's that if you don't adapt, you fail. And history is all about things that have broken and didn't work. And, and people made bad decisions or they made bad decisions that made things worse. And that's why, you know, the United States rose. That's why 
you know, this bit, the, the churn of, of history from the beginning until today is all about evolution, adaptation, ability to withstand um, crises. And, you know, going back to the beginning of some of the earliest histories we have, you know, I mean, it's no coincidence that Joseph and the story of the Pharaoh and his Technicolor Dreamcoat was Joseph saying, when you've got seven years of plenty, put stuff aside so that when things turn in the other direction and you have bad weather and famine, that you've got enough to feed everybody. And that's, I don't think it's, like I said, I don't think it's either controversial or contentious or difficult. It's just making sure that you've got enough back up for a rainy day, because I guess like the pandemic showed us, we're quite good at solving problems. You know, the vaccines were ready quite quickly. They got distributed globally quite fast in the grand scheme. It felt, didn't feel like that at the time. But uh, the problem is if you're solving problems at speed, it's always much, much more expensive. So never bet against humans and our ability to work it out. Probably probably there are going to be winners and losers, as there always are in the rises and falls of civilizations, powers, empires, political systems. So you probably want to be on, try and be on the right side of some of that. But, um, you know, if, you, if, you're on the, if you're on the wrong end of that equation, you lose the toss. And, you know, there are, there are consequences. <laughs> if you don't adapt, you fail. That's going to be the headline, Peter. Charles there Darwin couldn't have put it better, could he? <laughs> there we go. There we go.